Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 407. opponents, all your competitors, they face the same challenge that you do of managing your memories, telling yourself the right stories, envisioning the right futures. If you're just a little bit better at those practices than your competitors, your opponents, well, then you just created an advantage for yourself. If you or for maybe the benefit of someone you know, you're looking for the complete guide to confidence, how to understand it, how to build it, how to protect it, and how to rely upon it when your performance matters most, boy, have I got the book for you. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. Through this podcast, you and I both get to meet some pretty incredible people, and that is as true today as it's ever been. We're going to be talking in just a bit with Dr. Nate Zinser. He's written a new book called The Confident Mind, a battle-tested guide to unshakable performance. It is officially out today, the day this episode comes out, Tuesday, January 25th. I'll be asking Dr. Zinser to share about what confidence is and what it isn't, building your psychological bank account through techniques like filtering your past for valuable deposits and envisioning your ideal future, protecting your confidence every day, no matter what, and plenty more. Well, since the release of my book last August, Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career, requests for speaking and virtual and in-person workshop training has gone up considerably. In fact, I just returned earlier today on a flight from Naples, Florida, where I did some workshop training over the weekend. I had the chance last month to do some virtual training for the company Docket. Docket helps you have the best meetings you've ever had. They're the only meeting productivity platform designed to make meetings better before they start, while they're happening, and long after they're over. They integrate with Zoom, too, which is pretty cool. I had the chance to get in front of them and their staff last month for some virtual training. Here's what their CEO, Darren Brown, had to say. I've always believed that the best employees have a growth mindset when it comes to learning and seek out new ways to add value. Jeff's virtual workshop training inspired my team to be intentional. There's that word again about their reading as a source of learning. His step-by-step walkthrough covering how to select the right books for you and how to break down your reading so that you can get the greatest ROI has been invaluable. Again, that's Darren Brown, CEO and co-founder of Docket. Hey, if you're looking for a speaker for your next event or I can help your team with virtual or in-person training like I helped Docket's team, reach out to me, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com. That's Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. And if I piqued your curiosity about Docket, you can find out more about them at dockethq.com. 
Dr. Nate Zinser is the director of the Performance Psychology Program at the United States Military Academy at West Point, the most comprehensive mental training program in the country, where he has helped prepare two generations of cadets for leadership in the U.S. Army. Dr. Zinser also has been the sports psychology mentor for numerous elite athletes, including two-time Super Bowl MVP Eli Manning and the NHL's Philadelphia Flyers, as well as many Olympians and world champions. He's been a consultant for the FBI Academy, U.S. Army Recruiting Command, and the Fire Department of New York. He earned his Ph.D. in sport psychology at the University of Virginia. His new book is called The Confident Mind, a battle-tested guide to unshakable performance. Well, Dr. Zenser, uh, I want to officially welcome you to the Read to Lead podcast. I have to say I'm pretty excited to have you here today. Um, it is a pleasure to be here, Jeff. And I got to say, your byline, the idea that what we read is critical, has, has always been part of my operating philosophy. You know, the people you hang out with and the books that you read mm. are freaking important as we <laughs> go through this thing called life. So I love your philosophy and I'm delighted to be here. Well, I will keep some praise on you and just say that I'm, I'm about two thirds into the book now. I'm in chapter six, uh, coming on uh, page 200 here, as I've began reading earlier this week. This is one of the best books I've read in a long, long time. And I don't say that lightly because I interview people every week, 400 plus interviews, and I don't want to make anybody feel less than, but I cannot hold that back. This is one of the best books I've read in a really long time. So kudos to you. Thank you, sir. It, it, it's evidence of what I have long said a book is all about and why it's better than other mediums, video and, and, and others, because this book is the culmination of decades of research and work and practice all in this one tome. And I think it's, it's a book everybody should go get right now. Well, let's begin with, with something you address in the introduction, and, and that's what confidence is and, and what it is not. Most of us, I think, allow ourselves, as you say in the book, to feel confident only when things are going right. Very, very true. One of the common associations with confidence is basically the way you feel when everything's hunky-dory and, you know, wine and roses. I suppose that's true for a lot of people, but if you're in the business of competing for something, and that's pretty much true for all of us, mm. then allowing your confidence to exist if and only if things are going well for you basically guarantees that your confidence is going to be an, on an up-and-down roller coaster mm. because we live in an imperfect world. Things are not always great. And if you only allow yourself to feel certain about your abilities, certain about your capabilities, when things are going great, then you guarantee yourself a whole lot of episodes of fear, doubt, and worry. Well, related to that, uh, what do you say when a client says to you something along the lines of, of, I'm not good enough, or am I good enough? Because in the end, it's more than confidence or something else, right? Well, certainly human performance is a function of both your competence, your knowledge, your skill, etc., etc., plus your confidence in said competence, your sense of certainty about your skill level, about your experience, about your various capabilities, that certainty that you have about it to the point where you let yourself pretty much execute without talking yourself through every step, without mm. reflecting discursively, analytically on everything that you're doing while you're doing it, that certainty is what I call confidence. 
So whether you are 100% capable or, I don't know, 80% capable, you better be 100% certain in your 80% because <laughs> that's the only way we will ever see your true 80%. Nobody performs at their maximum level, whatever that maximum level might be, unless they have a really strong sense of certainty about it. And so my book is all about educating people about that sense of certainty, how to build it, how to protect it against, as Shakespeare said, the slings and arrows of outraged fortune, <laughs> and, how to, and how to, you know, bring it out, express it when you do indeed step onto the athletic field or step into the classroom or step into whatever arena you perform in, the courtroom, the operating room, the conference room, the sales negotiation, whatever it might be. Mm. Uh, Dr. Sinzer, during your years of, of study and observation, what have you found to be some of the more common misperceptions about confidence? Certainly the first one is the misconception that I have to be really, really, really successful before I can be confident. Mm. Okay. I make the point in the book based on years of work with all kinds of high-performing individuals that your degree of success is only important if you indeed reflect on it and think about it. You can be ridiculously confident even based on a relatively small amount of success. And I would encourage people to do that. Whatever success you've had, you better emphasize that to yourself mentally rather than discount it, rather than say, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough all the time. Another big misconception is that once you are successful, it's going to happen automatically. Um, this is one of the most remarkable things that I've seen because I have individuals coming to see me who have been state champions, high school All-Americans, leading scorers of this and that. But once they have come into, say, the West Point Division I athletic level, or they've gone into the National Hockey League or some other new level of performance, they all of a sudden feel like they're this tiny little fish in a great big pond. And ironically, when I ask these people where confidence comes from, they say success. And I have to say, well, wait a minute, didn't you just tell me that you were a three-time state champion, a national All-American, the leading scorer on your team? You've had a heck of a lot of success. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter how much success you've had or didn't have. It's how you think about that success, how you process it, how you interpret it, how you reflect on it, and how you use it in the moment to generate a sense of certainty about your capabilities right now when it matters. Hmm. This next question, uh, Dr. Zinser, is a short one, but it's also kind of a big one. Uh, talk a bit about the concept of our psychological bank account and this idea of what you call first victory? Short question, capable of a very, very long <laughs> answer. Uh, you're right about that one, Jeff. Um, psychological bank account. I use that as an analogy to help people think about the ongoing, ever-changing repository of memories, thoughts about oneself in the present, and ideas, visions, fantasies about their future. That collection of thoughts is very much like a bank account. It's like your checking account. Depending on what you put into it and what you take out of it, that is a running total that fluctuates, in the case of most of us, you know, day by day. Mm. Our sense of certainty about ourselves, the way I like to think about confidence, is a similar running total 
of everything that you think about yourself, the game or profession you're in, and everything that happens in that game. So that idea of a mental bank account, I think, makes it easier for some people to think, yeah, I've got some good stuff. I've got some metaphorical money. I need to save that up. I need to store it up. I need to make sure that the thieves of worry and self-doubt and inevitable human imperfection don't wear that bank account down, don't drain it. And I got to be able to open up my bank account, you know, kind of like they say on the TV ad, what's in your wallet? <laughs> I got to open up that bank account when it's time for me to step up to present or compete or perform. Mm. And I like that you dedicate three chapters to this in particular, dealing with memories, the past, dealing with how we think of ourselves in the present, and then, of course, envisioning our ideal future. I want to dig into some of that in just a moment. Please. Before that, though, you say the idea that our state of mind has substantial effects on our physical state and therefore our performance still hasn't fully caught on despite decades of evidence. Why do you think that is? Well, we still exist in a, a society, a culture that was birthed way back in the 15, 1600s mm. when, you know, Cartesian dualism first emerged as a philosophical uh, tenet. The idea that the mind and the thoughts are really the purview of priests and poets, but the body, this physical thing that we live in, mm. is a much more mechanical uh, device, and that is the purview of medical doctors, technicians, mechanics. We're still living in the legacy of that dualism, mind here, body here, mm. and never the twain shall meet. <laughs> um, going back, as you say, to the 60s, we really began to see that how you think when you regulate your thought process, it changes your mood. When you change your mood, well, we can measure all kinds of things to change. Heart rate, heart rate variability, blood pressure, muscle tension, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And our sophistication to look at those changes today is incredibly powerful mm -hmm. compared to what we were able to look at back in the 1960s. We have sophisticated brain imaging technology that allows us to see precisely which centers of the brain are alive and working, have a lot of neurons firing, mm. depending on whether you are watching a picture of, you know, a short video of puppies playing in the sun versus videos of car crashes. Mm. What we're seeing, what we're bringing into our senses is changing our whole emotional state. And that has demonstrably important effects on our bodies, which we all inhabit. Well, let me get into some of the uh, the bank account chapters then more specifically. Uh, what are some techniques for, for, for managing our memory such that we let in the ones that create energy and optimism and enthusiasm and, and keep out those that create fear and doubt and worry? Yeah. Um, the first exercise that I describe in the book specifically for managing memories is an exercise in which one would go back and think about their intro, what excited them about playing a particular sport or pursuing a particular musical instrument or pursuing a particular profession? What was the moment that sort of sparked their interest? Yeah, that's kind of cool. I think I'd like to do that. Okay. Then go into, again, your long-term memories and think about some moments where you have been kind of successful in the pursuit of excellence in that sport that passion, that 
profession. If you're a, what I refer to as a white collar athlete working in the business world, what are the important contributions you've made to your organizations? What are the projects that you've completed? Go back and let's see if we can create a top 10 list of your best moments as a professional. Mm. If you're a soccer player, let's go back into your history and let's list the memories of great moments on the soccer field, beating this team, winning this championship, scoring your first high school or college or professional goal. How about that game where you actually had two or three goals or the game where you had two or three assists or you were really effective defensively or offensively? Let's let's mine that vast storehouse of memories and pull out the gold, pull out the jewels, because these memories, those I think of as the essential deposits, initial deposits into that mental bank account. We want to make sure that we are not overlooking, discounting the powerful experiences, constructive experiences we've had in our past. And we are unfortunately conditioned to overlook those and not spend a lot of time. But man, I've never had somebody construct that top 10 list Mm. without sitting back and going, wow, I haven't thought about these in a long time. Mm. This is really great, Doc. (laughs) Let's talk about the present. How can we improve and work on more constructive thoughts about ourselves in the now, in the present moment? Well, the first thing to, to do is to really become aware of the stories that you tell yourself about yourself with regard to whatever it is you're trying to work with or or improve in. You've got to be very honest that in admitting that there is something called a self-fulfilling prophecy going on. The stories you tell yourself, the opinions you have of your, your foot speed, your explosive strength, your shooting technique, your analytical abilities, your interpersonal abilities, the stories you tell yourself about that have a huge influence on the actions that you take And those actions that you take naturally have a huge influence on the results that you achieve. Mm. So in a very powerful and very meaningful way, the results that you achieve as a function of your efforts, which are a function of your beliefs, those results are a pale reflection of the beliefs that you started out with. (laughs) So let's get busy telling ourselves stories about ourselves, basically thinking about how we would like to be as if we already are, changing that initial conception, thinking about a skill that you'd like to develop, but affirming that you have it. Mm. And that affirmational process creates a little bit of dissonance and it incentivizes you to actually do the things that are consistent with the belief that will move you toward the results that you want. So we think about that in terms of skills or abilities that we'd like to have. We can use that in terms of affirming a characteristic or quality that we would like to have. Composure in the closing minutes of a game or excitement as the most challenging part of uh, the third Brandenburg concerto uh, (laughs) comes up. I specifically remember mentoring a trumpet player Mm. here at the United States Military Academy band who had to perform various parts the Brandenburg Concerto, and I understand that's a rather challenging piece. So again, what quality do you want to have as you perform? And how about also affirming an outcome or an accomplishment? I am the team's leading scorer. I am a first-team All-American. I am a VP of sales. 
affirming that, saying yes to that, changing the story that you tell yourself regarding skills, regarding qualities, regarding outcomes, that is a way of adding to your running total of thoughts, your mental bank account, in terms of how you think about yourself in the present. And that differs then from envisioning in that we're thinking about something in the future that we want to achieve. This is this is one of my favorite chapters from the book so far. Talk about this practice of envisioning. What does that look like? It looks like what you see when you close your eyes. <laughs> close your eyes and tell me what you see when you think about your upcoming performance review, your upcoming staff meeting, your upcoming um wrestling match what are the still pictures and what are the video clips that that wonderful production studio in your imagination is coming up for you the important point to realize is that those pictures that we produce those and the sensations that come along with them actually have a rather profound impact on our nervous system mm. this is a, again a remarkable discovery that modern brain imaging and other technologies have demonstrated to us, but it's something that the ancients certainly suspected. How you think, what you picture is literally rewiring certain circuits in your brain. And I, I, I play with people all the time. I do a very detailed guided envisioning mm. of the process of cutting into a ripe lemon and bringing it up to your face and taking a big honk and bite of it. And everybody says, everybody says, oh yeah, my mouth is watering. My nostrils flared. Well, wait a minute. There was nothing in your mouth requiring saliva to start the digestive process. Your mental image communicated to the gustatory cortex of your brain via your taste buds and your brain sent back to your various glands in your mouth the instructions to Produce saliva, even though there was nothing to digest. You changed your nervous system. You fooled it. You can fool your nervous system into believing that you have accomplished that great negotiation, that you have delivered that wonderful closing argument, that you have kicked that game-winning field goal. And good performers are very disciplined with using their imagination in this way. I want to see, feel, and experience kicking that game-winning field goal from all different parts of the field, in all different wind conditions, in all different stadiums. Um, these are the things that I get people to be working on and devoting 5, 10, maybe 15 minutes a day to just really getting into the, the mental picture, not just seeing what they're going to see, but hearing what they're going to hear, feeling the temperature of the air, feeling their feet on the floor or their shoes on the turf feeling their body in motion, sensing the air in the conference room or the hockey rink or the wrestling mat. Get into that because the more of those senses that you bring in, the more of your neurology you're accessing and modifying. Yeah, you mentioned that 15-minute-a-day practice. I was reminded of the the hockey player who was not named in the book for, for obvious reasons, who would put hours and hours and hours of practice in the rink. But when told about some of these concepts, he wasn't willing to put in 15 minutes a day to give them a chance. Yeah, eye-opening and rather unfortunate. Um, I wish that fella had been able to at least give this stuff a try, mm. you know, and indeed try talking back to the little voice of negativity that we all have 
that pops up. He was unwilling to talk back to it. And um, that had a negative impact on his career, unfortunately. I'm so thankful, too, that you chose to include uh, in what is, in essence, a script in this chapter, the seven-step process, starting with creating your private room, et cetera. I took the liberty of pulling up the recording app on my phone and recording myself reading those pages Good, so that I could go through the process of closing my eyes and, and having that, that read back to me. So I'm looking forward to uh, practicing that. That is exactly what I hope a lot of people will do. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very helpful. Well, what are some techniques we can leverage then on a daily basis? to lessen the likelihood of having our confidence, as you say, stolen, this idea of alarms and locks and, and, and anti-theft devices, if you will. Sure. If you follow the analogy of this mental bank account, this repository of metaphorical money, you want to make sure that criminals don't break in and snatch some of it. <laughs> um, because we live in an imperfect world, because we are all by definition imperfect human beings, there are going to be indeed setbacks in our professional lives. We are going to make mistakes. We're going to get things wrong. And how we respond to simple human imperfection is very important in terms of protecting that bank account. It's easy. It's the most common thing in the world to experience this emotional letdown, this great sense of disappointment and despair when we hit a wall, when we hit a setback, when we goof up. Mm. But the trick is to be able to keep those setbacks in their proper perspective. Mm. Okay, sure. I'm not asking anyone to deny or overlook their imperfections, their mistakes. No, I'm asking them to consider them in the most constructive context possible. Yeah, it happened, but it only happened that one time or those two times or those three times. So you have to be willing to look at those mistakes and setbacks as temporary rather than, uh-oh, here I go again, same thing, different day, I'm going down the tubes, okay? You, you have to keep it in that temporary, temporal perspective. Second, it's also really beneficial to keep it in a very limited spatial or situational perspective. Yes, it happened, and it might have had some dire consequences, but it happened in that one particular situation, in that one particular setting. It was that one particular part of your overall game that broke down, okay? If you're playing golf mm. and your first few tee shots aren't where you like them, you better not lose faith in your iron play, your wedge play, your putting. You have to protect yourself from the trap of, mm. oh, my whole game is going down the tubes. Generalizing from a mistake or a setback in one setting to lots of other settings. You have to keep it limited in terms of where it occurred. And the third protective device, and this is by far the most challenging I have found for most people, is you've got to learn to keep those mistakes, setbacks, difficulties, problems in a somewhat non-representational perspective. In the, and what I mean by that is those mistakes do not tell the whole story about you. Mm. Those mistakes happened in that one time, they happened in that one place, and they do not represent you as an individual. We have been unfortunately conditioned to kind of define ourselves in, a, in very large part, 
by our inadequacies and imperfections. Let's not do that. <laughs> okay, let's understand it. Yes, it happened. And there are steps I need to take. But those imperfections are not the definition of who we are. We don't read into those and take them exceptionally personal. And those three devices, look at them as temporary, look at them as limited, look at them as non-representational. Those are three protective mechanisms that are quite useful. Mm, yes, they are. I did mention I'm about two thirds of the way through the book at this point. I have 35 pages of notes so far. <laughs> wow. I've almost written another book reading your book. <laughs> uh, so by the time I get to the last third, I'm probably going to have, I don't know, about uh, 45, maybe 50 pages of notes when it's all said and done. Well, well, we'll just have to have another conversation, Jeff. What the heck? <laughs> what the heck? Well, uh, I do have a couple of non-book related questions for you. Uh, but before I ask those, anything else from that last third of the book I haven't asked about that you want to make sure we know? I will just stress this. confidence is fragile. There's no such thing as achieving a great threshold of it and then never backtracking, okay? We live in an imperfect world. We're going to get beat up, you know. Certainly anybody who plays for example golf will mm. understand that wow, this game was designed to beat me up. Uh, <laughs> life is going to beat us up. So this is a constant process. This is a lifelong process. Um, I guess until you retire and don't care about getting better at anything anymore. <laughs> um, and I want people to accept that and not be discouraged by it. Mm. Not be discouraged by the fact that building, protecting your confidence is a lifelong process. Don't be discouraged by that, people, because guess what? Everybody you're competing against, everybody, all your opponents, all your competitors, they face the same challenge that you do. Mm. And if you can only be 5% better at facing that challenge of managing your memories, telling yourself the right stories, envisioning the right futures, if you're just a little bit better at those practices than your competitors, your opponents, well, then you just created an advantage for yourself. So get busy creating that advantage. <laughs> Good advice. You mentioned early on your fondness for books. Are you able to uh, share maybe a title or two that has been particularly impactful over the years? Absolutely. Um, over this past summer, I read the book Unbroken. It's the story of Louis Zamperini, an American track athlete in the late 30s and early 40s, who might just have been the first guy to run the four-minute mile had there indeed been a 1940 or a 1944 Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. He was on track to do that a decade before Sir Roger Bannister actually did it in May of 54. Mm -hmm. But of course, World War II intervened with that career path, and Louis Zamperini, like most young men of his age, enlisted in the Army, he joined the Army Air Corps. He served in the Pacific Theater. He was on a mission where his plane went down, and he and two members of the crew survived the crash in the ocean, spent 42 days floating in the Pacific in an inflatable raft. Their only water was what fell on them from the sky. Wow. Their only food were the few fishes and birds that they could somehow capture and eat raw. Oh and after those 42 days, their raft was picked up by a Japanese warship, and they spent the remainder of the war in various Japanese prison camps. Mm. And Zamperini's courage and resilience and toughness is just unbelievable to read. Mm. 
and I'll t- I'm not going to spoil the book for your readers, what happens after the war, after he is liberated, after he comes back to his home in California, is even more amazing than the privations and difficulties that he endured during his um, service and during his captivity. I can't recommend that book highly enough. Mm, unbroken. Okay. I, that's, that's the next on my list. Then. <laughs> I had not heard of that one, so I'm glad you shared that. Uh, you will not be disappointed. Excellent. Well, this has been very helpful. I appreciate you talking so freely and openly about your book, which I said early on is one of the best books I've read in a really long time. It again is called The Confident Mind, A Battle-Tested Guide to Unshakable Performance. Dr. Zinter, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. Jeff, thank you for having me. My best wishes to you and your listeners as we go forward into 2022. You know those pages from Dr. Zinter's book I mentioned that I'd recorded and he said he hoped everybody would record those seven steps and close their eyes and meditate on them as they listen back to them. I've reached out to him and his publisher for permission to share my recording with you. Now, I didn't get a chance to reach out in time to get an answer before this episode published, but as soon as I find out, I will let you know. And those who will find out first are those on my email list. So if you're not on my email list yet, go to readtoleadpodcast.com. There's a form to the right of the page. In fact, when you sign up now, you get my dream big ebook, The Five Personal Habits That Will Supercharge Your Life. And that'll add you to my email list. So when I get permission from Dr. Zinser, assuming I do, to share that recording, then you'll be the first to hear about it. Readtoleadpodcast.com and you'll see the sign-up form to join my list to the right of the page. My website is also where you can go to find out more about Dr. Zinser, his book, the books he recommended, and the other resources and links we talked about. Specifically, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 407 for episode 407. Remember, if you're looking for a speaker for your next event or someone who can lead your team in personal and professional development type training, you don't have to go far. Reach out to me, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com to get the conversation started. Well, that wraps up January 2022 for the Read to Lead podcast. Next time we meet, it'll be February 1st. Where has this first month gone? I hope you'll be here. In the meantime, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.